I've done something I shouldn't have done this past week. Um, I had a sermon written, all set, a couple weeks ago, and then I heard Dane preach last week. You messed me up. (laughs) He preached on running the race, and in the middle of that sermon, uh, a guy popped in my head, John Stephen Aquari. I'll show you a picture of him. This guy, he's, uh, he's he's an Olympic legend, and most of you probably have never heard of him, because he's well-known not for what he did do, he's well-known for what he didn't do. In 1968 was the 16th, I believe it was, the Olympic Games in Mexico City. And it was a, it was a very interesting Olympic Games. I don't think Mexico, Mexico City will ever again get Olympics because of it, because Mexico City is really high altitude, which may, means very thin air, and it's very hot which makes it very difficult, but also interesting. So anything involving uh, jumping through the air or the shot put of the javelin, they were breaking world records left and right, doing things that no one could do anywhere else on the planet. And so a lot of people went, well, great, we're never going to break that record again unless we go up high in the mountains again. But it was also very hot, which meant every running event was nearly impossible to pull off. And the most difficult Olympic event in all the Olympics is always the last one, the men's marathon, 26.2 miles. John Stephen Aquari, in 1968, he's from Tanzania. He was one of the, one of the great uh, long-distance runners on the planet. He had just that summer, before the Games, he had won uh, the world record. He was, he was the best, and he was expected to get the gold here at the Olympics. But within, I think it was the first two miles of the marathon, people were collapsing because they just couldn't handle the heat and the, lo- and the low oxygen. And there was a... a, a I don't know what you call it, a, a, a collision of, of uh, runners. And John Stephen Aquari got caught up in it. He fell, gashed his head, injured his shoulder, slashed his leg, and dislocated, completely dislocated his kneecap. Yeah. 80% of the Olympic runners quit you know, in, in the first two miles. But John Stephen Aquari, he goes to the sideline, got himself cleaned up, patched up, got his kneecap tied back into place. You see that? And he kept going. He couldn't, it was excruciatingly painful. He, could, he couldn't go very far very fast. And so he, uh, you know, he would run a few steps and then he would hobble for a few steps, run for a few steps and hobble for a few steps. It took him six hours to complete the, uh, the marathon. By the time he got to the Olympic Stadium, and that's what this picture is, <laughs> the games were over. Everyone, the awards for the last event had been given. The national anthem for the winner had been sung. The entire clothing ceremonies had been completed. Everyone left the stadium, went to, got in their taxi cabs, went to the hotel, packed their bags, were on the way to the airport to go home. The lights were off in the stadium when the word was he was showing up. And so they quickly turned the lights on. People scrambled to get back in. That's why the stadium is nearly empty. And he made a way. He made it through and got, got through the finish line. And so he's famous not for what he did do, but for what he didn't do. He didn't quit. And he was asked, why would you do this? You have a great career of running ahead of you. You're one of the best. Running on a dislocated kneecap, I mean, that, you're looking at ruining your body. You're never going to be able to run again. It's a good chance that you could hurt yourself permanently. And he said... My family and my country did not send me 5,000 miles to finish a race. I'm sorry, the other way around. They said they didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race, but 5,000 miles to finish the race. And this is what popped in my head when, when my friend Dane was preaching last week on running the race, and I thought about finishing the race, and I thought, you know what? Forget the sermon that I had. 
let's do this. I want to tag team on to what Dane's doing, and I want this, this almost like a part two. But I want to talk about the value of finishing well. This is something that preachers would say, they would say it preaches well, but it practices poorly. In ministry language, ministry lingo, when, they, when we say something preaches well, it means it's going to be easy to just say it. People are going to nod their head and go, oh yeah, I get this. I'm on board with what he's saying. You know, this isn't a huge sell for me, to, for me to buy into what he's saying. Finishing well, yeah, we should all do this. But in practice, this is extremely difficult. I have a book on my shelf in my office written by a great minister who, uh, who, was, who was known to be the guy when it came to leadership dynamics, and he wrote the book on finishing well. And a couple years ago, his ministry blew up, and he, 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 he ended. He left his ministry in disgrace. And the guy who wrote the book on finishing well couldn't finish well. It preaches well, but it practices poorly. And so I felt, you know what, maybe we should talk about this. Dane called us, let's get in the race, let's run the race, but let's talk about what's at the end of it. Let's finish well. And so we're going to look at a guy in the Bible that we probably don't spend a whole lot of time with, a guy named Caleb. We're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 14. If you want to get there, we're going to look at a really interesting story. A guy who doesn't get much mentioned, but he was number... Depending on how you see it, he was number two or number three in the nation of uh, Israel behind Moses and Joshua. And he's an interesting character. And while you're getting there, chapter 14 of Joshua, let me just give you a little bit of a context what's happening here. In chapter 13, God is, is he's, he's explaining the division of the new promised land. So the war is over. The land's been conquered. Now what? That's the question. What do we do with this land that we spent five years taking over? And so God says, I've carved out the land, the nation of Israel, the new promised land that I've sent you to. I've carved it out in the 12, 12, uh, 12 uh, sections and uh, for the 12 tribes. And the 13th tribe, which is the, the tribe of the Levites, the priest. They're not going to have a land. They're going to be in all the land. And so the priests of the Levites, they'll be all over the place in all the 12 tribes, in the 12 lands, and therefore ensuring that Israel will have one unified church, not 12 different churches. And so that's how he had it set up. But after that, God decided what the lands would be. It's up to the people, it's up to the individual tribe to decide where the individual clans of each tribe would live. And so now... They're going to take turns, and they're going to say, all right, this clan is going to live in this part of Judah, and this clan's going to live in this part of Judah, and this clan's going to live in this part of Ephraim, this clan's going to live this part of Gaz, and so on. And since Judah's the largest tribe, and they're the warrior tribe, and they're the big guys, so they go first, and, uh, and they send a guy named Caleb to, uh, to d- d- help uh, allocate the land. So let's read this, chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave to them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine and one-half tribes, for Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan. But to the Levites, that 13 tribe, he gave no inheritance among them, for the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. 
So here we get to, Ju to uh, Caleb. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jehephan of the Kenizzites, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since that time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. This is my favorite part. You ready? I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jehephunneh for inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jehephunneh the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord the God of Israel. Now they named Hebron for me with Kirath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Father God, we come to you this morning. We just ask you to, to help us understand your word. I personally ask you just to help me to speak. Allow the words I say not be mine, but yours. We desire to be a people who run the race as Dane was led by you to preach last week, but this week I ask you to show us what it means to finish well to have heart. And so we pray all this in your name. Amen. Caleb's a very interesting guy. I wish there was more about him in the Bible because the more, I, what little I read about him, I'm really, really intrigued. There's a couple of things you should know about Caleb. He's not Jewish. He's an Arab. It's very interesting. We know that because his father was uh, Yehefin of the Kenizzite. The Kenizzites are Arabs that reside in Syria, just south of uh, Egypt. They're the sworn enemies of Egypt. Now, how did a Kenizzite end up with the Israelites? We don't honestly know. I have a theory. Would you like to hear it? <clears throat> I think Caleb is related to Moses' wife, Zipporah. Because we know from Exodus that Moses, when he realized that he was a son of, uh, he was a Hebrew, and, uh, and his eyes were open, and he sees the, uh, the, the Israelite slave being beaten by the Egyptian slave master, and, uh, and Moses fights back, ends up killing the Egyptian slave master, and he runs, right? He goes south. Well, it says that he ran to a well where there was a woman named Zipporah who was being attacked by a gang of bandits who were going to, we don't know, rob her, rape her, maybe worse. Moses fights the band of uh, bandits off, and he, he protects her honor, brings her home to her father, who it is said is uh, Jethro, who is a priest of the Midians and a shepherd of the Kenizzites. So we know that Zipporah and her father Jethro are Kenizzites. They're Syrian Arabs. And it says that Moses lived with them, and he's a go-herder with them for a, for a long time before he encounters the burning bush, and he's commanded to go back up to Egypt and free the Israelites. 
I think Caleb went with him. Because we don't know where Caleb showed up, but somehow he's there doing all of this. I don't know, maybe he's Zipporah's brother. Maybe he's her cousin. Maybe he's her uncle. We don't know. But we do know that, uh, that the Kenizzites are, 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 are family to Moses. So that's where I think Caleb showed up. And we do know that after Pharaoh said, okay, I'm going to let your people go, and he lets the people go, and they go to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parts, and they get to the other side, and the Egyptians change their mind. They chase after them. The Red Sea comes over and swallows up the Egyptian army, kills them all. It says on the other side, the Israelites then all arrange themselves in the 13 columns to march. Those 13 tribes of Israel. Well, Caleb... The son of Yehefinah, the Canaanite, is not Jewish. He's not a part of the tribe. And it says that he was then made a member of the tribe of Judah, the warrior clan, the fighters. There must have been something about Caleb that was just, he was macho, he was a fighter. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't hesitate to throw down, so they put him in that tribe. And he marches with them. And we know that, that it took between 14 to 16 months for the Israelites to get from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. They're up on uh, 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 Kadesh Barnea. It's an overlook. It looks down on the River Jordan. And maybe on a clear day, you could just barely see the walls of that ancient city of Jericho whose walls have never, ever, ever fallen. And the Israelites, well, they're a little disappointed in what they see. We don't know what they were expecting. I assume they were probably saying, wait, this, this is it? We... We thought you were going to bring us to a brand new place, virgin land where there's nobody at, and it's just, we can make, do what, we can do whatever we want with it. This place, it's, it's filled with people. It, it's already, it already got people living in there. We can't, wait, this is the promised land? It took us almost a little over a year to get here, and this, this is it? And so they're concerned. And so Moses says, all right, let's get 12 spies, one from each of the nations, each of the tribes, excuse me, of Israel, and who do the Judites pick to be their spy? Caleb, the Syrian Arab. Isn't that interesting? He's given this huge task. They go over, they spy out the land, they come back, and they're just really upset with what they see. The, the, the hearts of the Israelites are melted, and they say, God, thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to do this. And he says, well, then you're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years. So this is Caleb. He keeps popping up again and again in very interesting places. And a lot of theologians believe that after Moses died and the Israelites were going to cross over the River Jordan to go into the Promised Land as commanded, that they had to decide who was going to secede Moses. And it was almost a toss-up between two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Isn't that interesting? And so this is our guy, Caleb. And he is a man who exemplifies finishing well. Caleb teaches us, first of all, that, hang on, let me just, a quick little personal note. I rewrote my entire sermon last night, so your sermon notes are backwards. Your last note is the first note, and the first note is the last note. Sorry about that. I want to I I keep you on your toes, so there you go. It's not our office's fault. It's my fault. <laughs> but first of all, finishing well means starting well, Caleb teaches us. If we want to be Christians who finish well, we need to understand that finishing well means starting well. So here's a question, why? Why do we need to finish well? Because here's the thing. If you are a Christ follower, you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are going to heaven. That's your eternal destination. Your citizenship is not of this earth. You have a, you have a heavenly citizenship. If that's the end, and that's the greatest end there could be, and there's nothing better than that, then why do we need to worry about finishing well? 
with things here on earth. Because we already have it figured out, right? Here's the deal. Heaven is our end, but right now is our purpose. There is a reason that the rapture happens later, at some point later. There is a reason why as soon as you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't just zip, go straight to heaven, that's it, you're done. Because you've done what you need to do. God keeps us here. Because while heaven is our end, right now is a purpose. We have a purpose. We have a reason to be here. God is using us. He wants us to be here. See, we have to plan as though Jesus Christ's return isn't for another thousand years, but we live every single day as if tomorrow is the last day. That's why we need to finish well. Joshua explains starting well to finish well as being wholly devoted to God. Look at verse 7. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again I was within my heart. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. My God. Isn't that interesting? Not their God. Not those other people's God. My God. Caleb, the Syrian Arab, had made Yahweh his God. Here's the thing. And he was wholly devoted to it. And no one is born wholly devoted to God. I don't know if you've ever, you probably have realized that by now. If you've been a Christ follower a little bit of time, you realize being wholly devoted to God is not an automatic thing. You don't just wake up and every thought is wholly devoted to God. You don't just go to work and every thought is wholly devoted to God. You don't, you know, deal with your children or your family, your spouses, and every thought is wholly devoted to God. We have to work at it. Every one of us, and Caleb teaches us this because he was definitely not born an Israelite and he is wholly devoted to God, which means there was a day he had to start. He had to choose from this day on, I will be wholly devoted to the God of Israel. And we all have to do that. Every one of us has to make an individual decision to start to be wholly devoted to God. We all have to make an individual decision to start to finish well. And we're compelled to do this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be compelled. And if you're not compelled, you need to work on it. You need to see somebody. See me. See Pastor John. See, see one of our elders. Because if, if there's no compulsion in your life that you feel, you know what, God is calling me to finish well, to do well, you need some counseling. Because there is something getting in the way. John 1 teaches us that salvation is by Christ alone. But here's the thing, guys. Starting well, that's on you alone. You have to decide to start to finish well on your own. That's for you to figure out. Because Jesus Christ's death, it saves us right where we're at. Right where you're at right now, the death of Jesus Christ saves you. But Jesus Christ didn't stay dead Three days later, he gets up from the dead. He resurrects himself, and he moves on, and he does things. This church, the way we do church, what we call Christianity, that was all invented after Christ's resurrection and before he went up to heaven. He set up this idea of meeting together. He set up what would come after him. He set up the Great Commission. He set all that up after his death. After his resurrection, he sets that up, and that's why the resurrection because there is life after death, but there is also spiritual life before death. Christ's death saves us right where we are, but his resurrection compels us to move. You've got to move around. 
And whatever we do, we've got to make sure that we're, when we're in that race that Dane was talking about last week, that we have decided right now, we've decided, you know what? I've decided I'm going to finish this well. Secondly, Caleb teaches us you have to stay the course to finish the course. You have to stay on the course if you're going to finish it. John Stephen Aquari, he's a great example of that. You've got to stay on there. You've got to keep going if you're going to finish it. We're going to look at these limited options that the uh, Israelites had. Look at Joshua chapter, uh, verse 10. Same chapter, verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke the word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. A little bit of a timeline, a little bit of a history lesson there. Caleb was 40 years old when the Israelites made it at Kadesh Barnea and they looked down the promised land. He was 40 years old when the Israelites said, hmm, not too sure about what we're looking. It looks like a fixer-upper. I don't know about this. He was 40 years old when he was chosen to be one of the spies to go into the land. And 12 spies went in, 12 spies came back. Ten of them completely lost their minds. They were unhinged by what they saw. They said, it's awful. It's awful. It's completely filled. There's no breathing room. I mean, it's just, it, there are people everywhere. They have figured out where all the strong points are, and they put fortifications there, so we can't beat them. They've already figured out all the weaknesses. We can't exploit it. They have armies. They have weapons. They have technology we don't have. They know where all the water is. They've secured it. They know where all the food is. They have it. And they're giant, they said. They're huge. They're, to us, we're like grasshoppers to them. And you know what we do with grasshoppers? We rip off their arms, legs, their heads, and we eat them. We can't go over there because they will eat us. But two of the spies showed up with big smiles on their face, ear to ear grinning. Joshua and Caleb, they said, it's awesome. It's moving ready. They figured out where all the strong points and put all the fortifications there so we don't have to figure it out. All we got to do is just take it. They figured out where all the water is. We don't have to find it. They know what grows best where and we don't have to figure that out. And you know, it's, it's, it's just perfect. All we have to do is go and take it. But the people listened to the 10, not to the two. And it says their hearts melted and they said, no. No, we don't want to do this. And Moses said, okay. They don't want to do it. I'm, I can't push them, so I guess we're not going to do it. God's anger burns against him. He says, okay, that's it then. Moses, you and everybody in your generation will not be allowed to enter the promised land. I'm going to wait until every single one of you die of old age or whatever before your people go in, with the exception of two. Only two people in your generation will get in, Caleb and Joshua, because they saw it. You wouldn't see it. And that's why they wandered for 40 years, essentially killing time until that generation passed away. Just wandering. When you look at their limited options that they have, there aren't any. They, they're homeless. They can't go back to Egypt. They, don't go, they won't go into the promised land. And so they're just going to circle around because they got nowhere else to go. And it's a hard, miserable experience. But here's what I want us to consider. What about Joshua's op or, excuse me, Caleb's options? Because he had options. Because Caleb is not Jewish. He's a Syrian Arab. He has a homeland he could go back to anytime he wants. You see, you just think about that. Caleb hung out with them for 40 years, watching the Israelites just banging their heads against the wall. 
making golden calves and bitter infighting and siege warfare and just arguing and just, you know, manna falling from the sky and then getting upset about it, water coming from rocks, getting upset about it, the cloud of fire that leaves him by day and night and being upset about it. And he's watching them just just beat their heads against the wall and he hung with them for 40 years when he didn't have to. He didn't have to spend a day in that wilderness. He could have gone home at any point. There was Jethro in that well and, and the sheep and the goat herding. He could have gone back to any of that anytime he wanted. At any point that he wanted to, Caleb could have said, I don't like the way this game is going. I'm going to take my ball and go home. But he didn't. He stuck it out. Isn't that amazing? He decided he needed to stay the course. So why? Why? Why would he do that? Why would he stick with them for 40 years of nonsense? The Israelites didn't have a choice. They were just stuck in it. But Caleb, he made the decision, I'm staying with them. I'm staying with you guys. Your God is my God. I believe that when the ten spies went into the land and they saw giants, they saw obstacles, they saw roadblocks, they saw fear and hurt and harm and destruction, Caleb, he looked deeper and he saw God. He saw right through all that and he saw the Lord. So he teaches us that finishing well means seeing past the giants and focusing on the Lord. We all have giants in our lives, big, hairy giants. Every one of us. Every one of us has a big giant in our life that it just it threatens our, our belief. It threatens our, our status as Christ followers. It pushes on us. Every one of us has a big, hairy giant that says, you know what, maybe you should exercise your option and back out of this. I'm, I'm no different. Listen, I struggle with tithing when I feel like, gosh, I don't know how I'm going to make my bills this month. You know, I'm not sure about my finances. So should we tithe? You know, that's a big, hairy giant. Maybe I had to just exercise my option and pull out and just pull back from that and say, you know what, why don't we wait until we're, we have more going for us and then we can start tithing again. You know, I'll exercise that option. Or sometimes it's a struggle to pray, especially there are times when you feel like, I'm not sure if there's anything on the other end listening to me. Maybe that's a big hairy giant that makes you say, you know, maybe I'll exercise my option and just, just back out of this, get off the course. Maybe it's reading the words. For some of us, we struggle with, gosh, this doesn't make sense. Some of us read like stereo instructions. I don't know what I'm looking at. And you know what? It confuses me. And it seems to be completely at odds with everything the world tells me. And at times, I feel foolish just reading this stuff. And so that's a big hairy giant that may just make you go, you know what? Why don't I exercise my option and just not do it? Or maybe attending church. There are so many things fighting for our attention, our time. And we say, you know what? There's all these things my family could be involved in. And that's a big hairy giant. And maybe I should exercise my option and just, you know, I'll be sporadic in my church attendance. See, we all have these things. Whatever it is in your life, it's a big hairy giant that threatens your status as a Christ follower and has you saying, you know what? Maybe... Maybe I could equivocate. Maybe I could uh, negotiate on what it means to be a Christ follower. Maybe I could exercise some options and get off course. Caleb teaches us we need to stay on course. If we're going to finish well, you have to make a decision right here. It's going to be difficult, and there are going to be big old hairy giants in my life, but I will choose to be deliberate to look right through them to the other side. Because here's the deal. I wish I could tell you that in Christ all the big hairy giants go away. I wish I could promise you that. But that would be a lie. They don't go away. 
but we're taught to look through them to see on the other side because that's where the Lord is. Amen? Finally, Caleb teaches us, if you're not dead, you're not done. Verse 11. I love that. I, you just hear, you can just hear the energy in his voice. You can just hear something of his personality in this. Behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am, as, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. I don't even know what that last part means, but it sounds cool, doesn't it? So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Listen, this isn't much of a retirement he's picking here. It really isn't. And I want to tell you, this hill country he chose is not exactly a Del Webb uh, senior resort. It really isn't. Don't take my word for it. You want to see what it looks like? This is what the hill country looks like in Judah. It looks exactly the same today as it does then. This is the land that he chose. Remember, Caleb was first. He's the first one to choose. In the land of Judah, he gets to his pick for his clan where they're going to live, and this is what he picked. And just in case you think, wow, all of Judah is pretty ugly, I want you to know he had some option. He could have chosen the Judean uh, Valley. That's what it looks like. Or he could have chosen the, the Judean uh, coastline. He could have had that. No, 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 no. He said, I want this. I want the hill country. <laughs> this, is, this is the fixer-upper, if there ever is one. <laughs> Can you just... 85 years old, and this is what I want for my future. This is my end. This is the hill country. In the hill country, there is no water for agriculture. There is no flat land for livestock. And the Anakim are there. It is filled with hostile fortification. The Anakim are, we don't know much about them. We just know that they're uh, uh, cities of people who were uh, against the Israelites. They were enemies. But they had never been fought and roused out because, well, you saw that what that land looked like. It really wasn't worth the battle. So they were just sort of left there. Somebody got to deal with them at some point. Maybe they thought, well, why don't we just block off all the roadways and we'll starve them out. It'll take a couple generations, but they'll just eventually go away. But either way, the Anakim are left. And in fact, they've named the whole place Arba after the strongest guy, kind of like Goliath. And so if you're going to be in the hill country, you know the Anakim are something you're going to have to deal with. And so Caleb, he chooses something he knows is going to be a battle and a struggle every single day for the rest of his life. At 85, I got to say, seriously? Seriously, Caleb? Now, he's definitely a strong guy. I have known some strong men in my life, and I've known some strong older men in my life. One of the strongest is my great-grandfather. His name is Amos, but nobody's ever called him Amos. Everyone called him Moose. As long as I've been alive, it's always been Moose. He's tall. He's lanky. He's kind of like a Charlton Heston, kind of big and strong like that. Moose 
when uh, I think he was about 95 years old, he was still living in his house up in Oakers, California, which is up in the mountains uh, in the Sierra Nevadas. And he was 95, and the family found out he was still chopping down trees to make his own firewood. And the family said, gosh, he's going to get hurt. And he's going to get left out there in the woods and die a horrible death, so we need to step in. So the family stepped in and grabbed Moose and put him in an assistant living facility closer to family. Lockdown facility with 10-foot walls, and he escaped. <laughs> he did. No one knows how he did it or what happened. He was just gone. The family got a call from the assisting living facility. He said, he's gone. <laughs> and we thought, where could he go? We don't know where he went. He has no money. He didn't have a wallet. He's got nothing. He just has his clothes on his back, and he jumped the fence somehow. 95 years old. Escaped. And... His house in Oakhurst, a couple hundred miles away, we thought, well, no way he went there. But we sent somebody just to be sure. Sure enough, he either hitchhiked or walked up to Sierra Nevada, went home, where he found that the family had cleared out his house. We got all the stuff out of there. We weren't too sure what we were going to do with the property, but we wanted to clear it all out. And so he was found sitting in this house with no heat, no electricity, and uh, he had grabbed a plastic tablecloth from the trash, was using that for warmth. 95 years old. He said, I ain't staying in that place. He's strong. He was strong. He passed a couple years ago at 98. But uh, so we, we said, okay, you win. You can stay at the house. We'll bring some of your stuff back, and we'll have a caretaker come. Okay, we heard you loud and clear. <laughs> strong guy. Caleb is a strong guy at 85. But you know, here's the deal. I've got to say, seriously, I don't know if he really is as strong at 85 as he was at 45. I mean, this is what Caleb claims. But seriously, yeah, maybe God supernaturally gives him a little bit of strength and power. We don't know that. But usually when something like that happens, the Bible is very intentional to tell us when God does something like that. And there's no mention of that. This is just Caleb saying, I am as strong today at 85 as I was at 45. No one's going to move me or change me. I say, really? I don't think he was. I, 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 th I don't know that 85, he was as agile, as quick, as strong, or as ready as he was at 45. But in his mind, he was. In his mind, he was 100% there. Nothing had slowed down in his mind. That is the attitude of saying, if you're not dead, you're not done. So when I ask you this morning, where's your mind at? You know, the Bible never once mentions a retirement plan. Never once. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. But nowhere does it say, you're the salt of the earth until you graduate out of that. The Bible says, you are the light of the world, but never does it say, until you age out. The Bible says, we are a city on a hill, a beacon for everyone who wants to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But never does it say, well, until you retire from that. If you're not dead, you're not done. For every second, as a Christ follower, we're going to run that race that Dane was preaching about last week, and we're going to do it for every second until the very, very end. Caleb teaches that. You know, he took the hard assignment, the hill country. I just think today is a great day. Today can be a great day for some of you. You're struggling with the big hairy giants in your life. You're struggling with, you know, I don't know if I've really stayed on course. I don't know that I would identify that. I don't know that I would say that I've 
ever really thought to choose to start to finish well. I don't know that I've ever really thought, hey, you know what? I'm working every single day as a Christian until my last day. Maybe for some of us, we said, you know what? I think it's time for the younger folks to take over while I just sit back and watch because it's great to watch. Today can be a day to change that. Today is a great day to decide to start finish well. I'm going to invite Heidi to come forward. Because I want us to consider that as we go into this time of communion, it's a great moment to just spend some time in introspection and thought and say, you know what? Maybe today is a day to decide to start to finish well. I could today, I could start to finish well. Or today is a, a great day to choose the option to stay on course. I've always kind of thought you just kind of go through life as a Christian and it just sort of happens automatically. But no, I realize today I have to be intentional to choose to stay on course. Or maybe today as we're going through communion, you think, you know what, maybe today is a great day just to affirm to myself that I'm not done. I got work to do. God has work for me to do. And it's a great value. It's a great day when you decide to start to finish well. When we're going to finish well as Christians, we live the life that God's called us to. Amen?